Acts chapter 22, starting at verse 22, if you would bow with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we, as we come before you, are, are mindful of how much we owe you. We are mindful of how much you have loved us, starting with the cross, where you sent your Son, your only Son, to take our sin upon his body, to be our substitute. For it is the only way that we could be a part of your family. It's the only way we could have eternal life. It's the only way we could pass from death to life. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, but thank you for meeting our need. Thank you for your word that guides us, corrects us, teaches us to live righteous lives. Help us to take it seriously in our lives, to apply it in our everyday situations. Lord, we are grateful to you that we have this time together. We are grateful to you for your people who gather in this place, who love you, and show that love to others in the body as well as to those in their lives outside this building. Father, guide us in our study this morning, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you look at Acts chapter 22, starting at verse 22, the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him, He's not fit to live as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. The commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. The question that we might ask is what could cause this kind of reaction? Verse 22 said the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. What does the this refer to? Well, it refers to the previous verse where Paul said that the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Paul said the word Gentile, and that word caused, uh, uh, as one writer said, instant rage and violence. Not only did Paul say the word Gentiles, but he also claimed a commission from God. Paul, in our passage, as you will remember, is going through various trials because he was lied about by the Jews. He was manhandled by the crowd. He faced mistreatment by the government. He was a pawn in the hands of the religious leaders. And he was tried in a mock trial that we're going to study this morning, a virtual kangaroo court. Paul must have felt that he was in the hands of a murderous mob that he was in the hands of Rome. I think sometimes you and I, when we look at our lives, we feel that we are in the hands of the people and the circumstances and the institutions. Let me give you an example. So many times we feel we are in the hands of the doctors when we get a diagnosis, right? Sometimes we feel that we're in the hands of our employer. Sometimes we feel that we are in the hands of our enemies. Sometimes we feel that we are in the hands of the government. Those of you who are in the Air Force, you must feel sometimes that you're in the hands of the Air Force, right? We feel like we're at the mercy of people and circumstances and institutions. Paul must have felt a little like that. But we are not at the mercy of the people and circumstances and institutions of our lives. And that's exactly what this passage is about. That's exactly what this passage is teaching us. We are not in the, at the mercy of the people in our lives. We are not at the mercy of the circumstances in our lives. We are not at the mercy of the institutions in our lives. No, we are in the hands of God. And if you hear nothing else this morning, I want you to hear that. 
We are in the hands of God. Whatever challenge comes into your life and my life, whatever difficulty, whatever praise, whatever joy, we are not at the mercy of people and circumstances and institutions. We are in the hands of God. As one of the writers said, the key thought of this passage is that God is in control of all circumstances. God is in control of all circumstances. God is there in our hour of need. Paul must have sensed the need in his life acutely at this point. With the mistreatment that he has been enduring that we've been studying about over the last chapter and the difficulties that he faced and the probability of harm to him, he must have felt like he was in the hands of his enemies, the hands of the Romans. And yet what we are being assured about and reassured about in chapter 22 and chapter 23 of Acts, particularly verse 11, is that we are in the hands of God. He's taking care of us. So I don't know what your challenge is this morning. I don't know what your need is this morning. I do know that you, if you know Jesus as your Savior, you are in the hands of God. He's in control of the circumstances of your life and of my life. Well, verse 22, the crowd listened to Paul until he said this, the this being that God sent him far away to the Gentiles. Well, the, the mention of the word Gentiles produced instant rage and instant violence, as one writer said. What was the problem? The problem that was that Paul was teaching that Jew and Gentile are equal before God. Paul was teaching that Jew and Gentile are equal before God. We get a glimpse of that teaching in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28, where Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ. What's happening here is the Jews are incensed that Paul is putting Gentiles on a par with Jews. The, the Jews were fine as long as Gentiles had to come through them to go to God. But what Paul was teaching was that Jew and Gentile are equal before God. They have equal access to God. And they are equally accepted by God through faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Messiah. That's what triggered them. That's what caused them to go into this frenzy of rage and frenzy of violence. Paul was offering salvation apart from the law, apart from the sacrifices, apart from the temple to Gentiles, and they could not stand that. They could not stand that. And that's what caused their reaction to Paul. The sad thing, and I, I want you to remember this, uh, Chris talked about it a couple of weeks ago, I've talked about it over the last couple of weeks, I want to mention it one more time this morning. The sad thing is that the Jews in this passage are irrevocably refusing the gospel as a nation. They are irrevocably refusing the gospel as a nation. And that's what's sad. You, you get the sense of what's going on here and, and a good summary in Romans chapter 9. If you would turn, to me, turn with me to the next book of the Bible after Acts, which is the book of Romans, and turn to chapter 9 and verse 30. What then shall we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith? But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. In other words, the Gentiles have obtained righteousness from God. The Jews have not obtained righteousness from God because the Gentiles obtained it by faith and the Jews refused to go by faith. Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but 
as if it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Sadly to say, God's own people, the Jews, turn their backs on God and his Messiah. And they do it here in Acts chapter 22. And it would bring dire consequences into their nation, into and up till today. Well, that's what the problem is. That's why uh, they were so intensely angry. So we read in verse 23, or rather the latter part of verse 24, the commander, the Roman commander, directed that Paul be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. What a genius this Roman commander is, right? He said, I know how to get a confession. We'll just flog him until he confesses and tells us what he did to cause all this. Now, we'll talk about flogging in just a minute, and I'll explain how it differs from the 39 lashes of the Jews and differed in, from beating, being beaten by rods, which happened also to Paul. Uh, but uh, on a, on a, and there's not much humorous, humor about flogging, but one of my favorite T-shirts <laughs> came from Corpus Christi, North Beach, Corpus Christi, from a restaurant called Blackbeard's. Anybody ever been there? Ah, see a couple of you, you know what I'm talking about, right? Great restaurant, usually great music, not always, but usually great music. But I have a t-shirt there, and the back of the t-shirt says, the floggings will continue until morale improves. <laughs> that's, that's kind of the view of this Roman commander. We're going we're gonna to flog him till we get the truth out of him. I mean, who's not going to confess to anything under the whip? But it was more than a whip. Let me explain the difference between uh, Jewish 49 lashes minus one being beaten with rods. Paul was already beaten with rods. In fact, it happened several times in his life according to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We have seen it in chapter 16 of the book of Philippi, of the, uh, at Philippi in the book of Acts. That was serious enough. The Jews administered the 40 lashes minus one. They would always stop one short because they didn't want to go beyond the law and become uh, in danger of the law themselves by going too far. So they always stopped one lash short. Uh, the Jewish 40 lashes minus one was administered by long whips. Flogging, however, Roman flogging was quite different. The Romans used a wooden handle, handled instrument with a whip on the end and embedded into the whip were pieces of bone and lead. Can you imagine what that did to a human being to be flogged by a wooden handled whip, short whip, with bone and metal embedded in the whip. The truth is that it could kill or permanently cripple a person. And many were killed and many were crippled in the process of flogging. Jesus, our Savior, endured flogging as part of his punishment according to Matthew 27, verse 26. As part of what he endured for you and for me, the Roman short whip with pieces of bone and lead striped our Savior's back for you and for me. Well, that, that's what Paul was facing. That's what they would do to make a person confess their crime. There is one little problem, however, and we see it when we read on in verse 25. As they stretched him out to flog him, 
Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? The short answer to that is no. Roman soldiers, Roman commanders, Roman centurions were not allowed to flog a Roman citizen unless they had been found guilty. If they had been found guilty and punishment was being applied, they could be flogged. But otherwise, they could not be. They could not be flogged to be interrogated as they were about to do here to Paul. A Roman citizen could not be examined by torture. A Roman citizen could not be examined by torture. As they stretched him out, verse 25, to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? Boy, I would love to have seen the face on that centurion. Because the penalty for him would have been dire, and the penalty for his commander would have been dire had they gone forward and flogged a Roman citizen who hadn't been found guilty of anything. There'd be dire consequences for them. Verse 26, when the centurion heard this, <clears throat> he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do, he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. He said, what are you thinking? This man's a Roman citizen. We can't flog him. He's not been found guilty of anything. Well, all I was trying to do was get to the bottom of charges against him. That wouldn't fly. That would not fly. Verse 27. The commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Now, at this point, you might say to yourself, well, gee, whether I was a Roman citizen or not, I would say I am. It's going to get me out of flogging. Guess what the penalty was for claiming to be a Roman citizen if you were not? Death. Darn if you do, darn if you don't. The penalty was death to falsely claim Roman citizenship. Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, Paul answered. Then the commander said, I'd had to pay a big price for my citizenship. That was one of the three ways you got Roman citizenship in that day, and that is you bribed some official to give you citizenship. We'll talk about the other two ways in just a moment. And the commander said, I had to pay big for my citizenship. Paul says, but I was born a citizen. I didn't pay a penny. Those who were about to question Paul withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. Nothing good could happen to a centurion or commander who did that to a Roman citizen. Roman citizenship was valued greatly in that day for many reasons that I don't have time to get into this morning, but it was highly valued in that day. Now, I mentioned to you there are three ways to become a Roman citizen. The first is what Paul mentions. The first way is to be born uh, of uh, parents who were Roman citizens to be born of parents who were Roman citizens. Apparently, Paul's parents were Roman citizens, so he was therefore born a Roman citizen. The second way was by doing special service to the emperor or to the empire. If you did some special service to the emperor or did some special service to the empire, you could be awarded citizenship. Many of the scholars believe that Paul's mother and dad very, that's how they gained their citizenship. They had done some special uh, service for Rome. The third way was a very common way in that day. It was common under Claudius, the empire, and it was by bribery, by bribing an official. 
In fact, it was considered a source of revenue for the Roman officials to uh, take bribes for handing out citizenship during the reign of Claudius. Government officials would accept bribe money and people could purchase Roman citizenship. It was common for them to do that and it was expensive for them to do that. That's why the commander says to Paul, I had to pay a big price for my citizenship. All right, now, the commander has a big problem now. What's the big problem? There's this riot going on in the city of Jerusalem. He can't understand why it's going on. He can't seem to get to the bottom of it. He can't seem to find out what is wrong. What did Paul do? What horrendous thing did he, did, did he do that the Jews wanted to stone him to death because that's what they were doing by throwing dust and taking their cloak off. And they were getting ready. You know, they needed room to go like that. They were getting ready for a stoning. And he had to write a report. He had to write a report that would explain what was going on, what happened. So verse 30, the next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. In other words, he had been unsuccessful at getting at the root of the matter. And as a, a Roman soldier, he needed to find out were there adequate grounds to bring legal charges against Paul. He needed to know what charges, if anything, should be brought. And as a citizen, Paul had a right to know the nature of the charges and penalties against him. The only thing that the Roman commander had to hang his hat on was that it had something to do with religion. It had something to do with religion. At the heart of it, it was a religious matter. And so he calls the Sanhedrin into meeting. The Sanhedrin was the supreme court of Israel, and they had jurisdiction in non-capital cases. Although they could advise Romans on capital cases, they themselves could not carry out capital cases except in the matter of bringing a Gentile into the temple proper. The, the Sanhedrin consisted of the high priest, which at that time was Ananias, and we'll talk about that gem in a moment and 70 others who were members of high, the high priestly family. They were people of influence. They were professional experts in the law, both Pharisees and Sadducees, and the Sanhedrin was dominated by the Sadducees. That should help us understand what's happening next. So the next day, the commander, wanting to find out exactly why Paul is being accused, ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. He brought Paul and had them stand before him. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. He's saying... I have been fulfilling God's commission in my life. I have been fulfilling God's will in my life. And what Paul was doing by reaching out to the Gentiles, by being the apostle to the Gentiles, what Paul was doing was flying in the face of the Jews and what they considered apostasy. Paul was not helping his case. I have to laugh because later on Paul... Paul divides them by Sadducees and Pharisees, and I'll explain why he did that in a few moments. But I have to laugh at that people uh, say, well, well, Paul knew how to, how to divide the crowd. Paul was, almost had this evil smile on his face when he said, I'm on trial because I'm a Pharisee, and, and he, how he divided 
the Sanhedrin by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and caused them to fight each other and to fight him. How clever was Paul? If he's so stinking clever, why did he begin by saying that I have a good conscience before God? That set him off right away. That set him off right away. Now, conscience in the New Testament, conscience in the Bible, conscience to the New Testament, especially conscience to the Greek, doesn't mean the standard that you live by. Uh, let me explain it this way. It literally means, to the Greek means to know with or to know together. It's this way. Conscience doesn't set the standard. It only witnesses to whether one is living by their standard. If my standard is to live by the word of God and to live by the will of God in my life, my conscience decides, am I doing it or not? Conscience isn't the standard. Conscience is what determines and witnesses to whether I am living by the standard or not. As Warren Wiersbe said, conscience doesn't set the standard, it applies the standard. What Paul is saying is, my standard has been the word of God, and I have been obedient to the word of God and the will of God up to and including this very moment. Well, if he's been following the will of God and his conscience bears witness that he has been following the will of God and the word of God, then there's a problem because what he is doing under God's orders is directly opposed to what the Jews think should be done. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Good for you, Paul. God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to, to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. It was a violation of the law of God to strike somebody who had not been found guilty in this kind of situation, and the high priest feels free to violate the law all the while he's judging Paul by the law. Does that make any sense? Paul's statement enrages the high priest. Now, you have to know a little bit about the high priest. It was Ananias who was the high priest. He became high priest in about 48 A.D., and he served for 10 or 11 years till 48 or 59 A.D., and what you need to know about him is he was cruel, greedy, and violent. He was cruel, greedy, and violent. He was known for his greed. He was known for his violence. He was known for assassination. He was known for being brutal. He was known for being scheming. He stole the tithes of the ordinary priests, that which helped them to live. He stole and he bribed both Romans and Jews and was pro-Roman. And what Paul is saying is it was a violation of the law to order Paul slapped. Jewish law safeguarded the rights of defendants who were presumed innocent until proven guilty. Paul responds to this treatment when he says to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. That is almost prophetic here. 
His words turned out to be prophetic. Ananias, several years after this incident, was hunted down and assassinated by Jewish fanatics when the war on Rome began in 66 A.D. Paul's words were prophetic. Paul was responding to this illegal treatment. He hadn't been charged, let alone tried and found guilty. Anyone who behaved as Ananias was behaving was bound to come under God's judgments. Under God's judgment. Now, I, I find it very interesting all through this passage. Uh, through Paul's responding by saying, I'm a Roman citizen, is it right to flog a Roman citizen to avoid being flogged? Did, would you believe there are commentators who actually say Paul should have taken it? Paul should have just taken it. He wasn't following 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 23. Jesus answered not. If you are being mistreated because unjustly and because of the truth, just take it. The trouble is they misapplied that to Paul. And they, they also have said here, Paul, in answering the high priest like that, loses his composure. He, 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 he loses it. And they try to charge him with needing to get back in the will of God. I think it's ridiculous to say that for many reasons. And let me give you a couple. And it, and it goes back to what your view is of the biblical view of self-defense. What is your view of the biblical view of self-defense? I'm going to take just a few moments with that. Because I think it's important to this passage. Did Paul lose his composure? Should he have just taken it? Well, Jesus didn't take it in John chapter 18, verses 19 to 24. Jesus didn't take it. When he was slapped, his response was to challenge the propriety of the blow. Jesus many times offered pointed criticism of the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. One writer said, and I really like this, it is excessively squeamish to censure Paul for his plain speaking. Another said, humility and meekness do not make a man a milk toast." Humility and meekness do not make a man a milk toast. Paul could not have been called a milk toast. Jesus could not have been called a milk toast. So, so how are we to see this? Did Paul answer wrongly? Was he wrong to answer that way? Should he just have taken it? Is that what the Bible's calling us to do when we are wrongly treated? Is there a time when we can defend ourselves? Well, there's two things that I think are conflated in many Christians' thinking and misunderstood in their thinking, and that is uh, the difference between self-defense and retaliation. The Bible teaches that we should not, when we are offended, when we are insulted, we should not retaliate in kind. We should not retaliate in kind but it also teaches the right to self-defense. It also teaches the right to self-defense. Now, we could do a whole series on self-defense, and, and maybe that would be appropriate one day, but it's not going to be today. Because I've got to get through to verse 20, 23, verse 11. In 15 more minutes. Uh, but I'd like to direct you, if, if this is a, a, a topic that's of interest to you, uh, I'd like you to direct, a, direct you to a website where you can get really good answers. I'm going to share a little with you this morning from this website on what does the Bible say about self-defense. And the website is gotquestions.org. 
I see some head shaking. You know, many of you know the website. It's a fantastic website. And it's fantastic because I have checked their doctrinal statement and they're doctrinally sound. That's the first question that matters. Are they doctrinally sound? Uh, you can go to gotquestions.org and type in what does the Bible say about self-defense and you'll get a fantastic article. And if you're interested in this topic, I hope you'll go there. I'm going to share a little bit from it. Uh, the author says this, the proper use of self-defense has to do with wisdom, understanding, and tact. And then the rest of the article is about explaining what does that mean, the proper use of self-defense has to do with wisdom, understanding, and tact. Uh, basically, what he's saying is that what we are allowed to do and what we should do may be two different things. What we are allowed to do and what we should do may be two different things. Uh, he cites Exodus 22, which is a, a major central passage about self-defense. Uh, he says Exodus 22 gives some clues about God's attitude towards self-defense. And then he quotes Exodus 22, 2-3. If a thief is caught breaking in at night and struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. But if it happens after sunrise, the defender is guilty of bloodshed. Two basic principles, the writer says, are taught in this text. The right to own private property and the right to defend that property. Okay, that's where we start. Then, the writer says, the full exercise of the right to self-defense, defense, however, depended on the situation. No one should be too quick to use deadly force against another, even someone who means to do him harm. If someone was set upon by a thief in the middle of the night and in the confusion of the moment the would-be thief was killed, the law did not charge the homeowner with murder. But if the thief was caught in the house during the day when the homeowner was unlikely to be awakened from sleep, then the law forbade the killing of the thief. Essentially, the law said that homeowners shouldn't be quick to kill or attack thieves in their home. Both situations could be considered self-defense, but deadly force was expected to be a last resort used only in the event of a panicked, surprise attack scenario where the homeowner is likely to be confused and disoriented. Even, the writer says, in the case of self-defense against a thief, a godly person was expected to try to restrain the assailant rather than immediately resort to killing him. Then the writer talks about our passage this morning from Acts chapter 22. Paul engaged in self-defense on occasion, although nonviolently. When he was about to be flogged by the Romans in Jerusalem, Paul quietly informed the centurion with the scourge that he, Paul, was a Roman citizen. The authorities were immediately alarmed and began to treat Paul differently, knowing they had violated Roman law by even putting him in chains. Now, I said when we started that the problem here seems to be that Christians mistake self-defense, the biblical teaching about self-defense, with the biblical teaching about uh, retaliation. And the passage, the main passage where we find that is in Matthew chapter 5, verses 39, which is often used and applied to self-defense when instead it should be applied to retaliation for an offense. Remember Jesus said if somebody slaps you on the cheek, uh, turn the other cheek. He wasn't talking about not defending yourself. He wasn't talking about self-defense there. The slap on the cheek was if somebody insults you, if somebody offends you, don't retaliate against them for insulting you or offending you. In fact, in many cases, you should take the, assault, the insult or take the offense. The article says this. Let me quickly... Mention this. Jesus' command to turn the other cheek, Matthew 5, 39, has to do with our response to personal slights and offenses. Some situations may call for self-defense, but not retaliation in kind. The context of Jesus' command 
is his teaching against the idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Our self-defense is not a vengeful reaction to an offense. In fact, many offenses can simply be absorbed in forbearance and love. In other words, the, uh, a really good and proper response to being offended, to being insulted, is to forbear, to love the other person. We're not talking in Matthew 5 about self-defense and the right to self-defense. We're talking about how to respond when we are insulted. Well, the article ends this way. The Bible never forbids self-defense and believers are allowed to defend themselves and their families. But the fact that we are permitted to defend ourselves does not necessarily mean we must do so in every situation. Knowing God's heart through reading His Word and relying on the wisdom that comes from heaven will help us know how to best respond in situations that might call for self-defense. Again, if you... Want more information about this? I urge you, please go to GodAnswers.org and uh, type in what does the Bible say about self-defense. I think you'll find plenty there to study. Um, so I don't see a problem here with Paul's response. I don't believe he lost his composure. I think he was acting very much like his Savior. Paul cites Exodus chapter 22, verse 28 which talks about the need to respect authority in his response when he says in verse 5, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. There is Exodus 22:28. There is a need to respect authority. It's all throughout the Bible. We are told to respect authority. In the Old Testament, they were told to respect authority. In the New Testament, we are told that in the church, in 1 Thessalonians 5, Hebrews 13, that we are to respect the authority of the spiritual leaders of our church. In the secular realm, Paul teaches us in Romans 13, 7, that we are to respect the authority of the civil leaders over us. Now, what is happening in our passage is that Paul respected the office, though he didn't respect the man. Paul, in answering Exodus chapter 22 and verse 28, he respected the office, though not the man who held the office. That's the case with Ananias well the question is why didn't he recognize the high priest real quickly let me give you a couple of reasons one is that he was speaking here ironically meaning how could a person like this with this kind of character be a high priest could be he meant that when he says I didn't recognize he was the high priest no high priest could act like that and be a right high priest it could mean that Paul just had poor eyesight and didn't recognize him. Third, the third uh, reason is probably more accurate, and that is the meeting was an irregular meeting. Remember, it was called by the Roman commander, and it wasn't a regular meeting. And so the people who were there, the officials in the meeting of the Sanhedrin, were not in their usual dress and were not in their usual position. And Paul has been gone from Jerusalem almost, uh, except sporadically, for almost 20 years. And he may truly not have recognized the high priest. Well, Paul begins again. Then Paul, knowing, this is verse 6, then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, 
but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Now, some people accuse Paul and they say, look, how clever was Paul? How clever was he knowing that the Sanhedrin was divided between Pharisees and Sadducees? Sadducees, by the way, did not uh, accept any part of the Bible except the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Sadducees did not believe in angels. Sadducees did not believe in uh, the, the demon world. Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. That's why they were sad, you see. <laughs> Nailed it twice. First service got it too. Okay. That's why they were sad, you see. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And, and some say, some say, well, how clever was Paul that he used the divide and conquer idea knowing that some were Pharisees and some were Sadducees. Here's why I don't think that is true at all, and I don't think Paul was cleverly manipulating this situation. I believe that the reason Paul mentions the resurrection is because the resurrection is the heart of Christianity. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. He was just simply going to the heart of the matter. If you don't believe in the resurrection, then where else is there to go? If Jesus isn't resurrected from the dead, Christianity is, is a fake. It's not true. Jesus has to be resurrected from the dead. And I think he goes right to the resurrection of the dead because that's the heart of his message. That's the heart of what he has been saying. He's not plotting. He's not manipulating. He's not wryly, wryly trying to stir them up. The resurrection is an essential doctrine of Paul and the early church. Uh, to put it a little humorously, if it were a Jeopardy question, it would be, Alex, the Bible for $200. Question, if you can disprove this, you can disprove Christianity. Answer, what is the? Thank you. You guys got it. The first service didn't. I even gave you the answer just like they do on real television. Never mind. <laughs> I think that's why he mentions it, because it's the heart. I mean, after all, Peter in chapter 2 and verse verses 31 and 32 of Acts preach the resurrection. Peter and John in chapter 4, verse 2, chapter 4, verse 33, preach the resurrection. Paul in chapter 17 and verse 18, chapter 17, verses 31 and 32, chapter 26, verses 6 to 8, preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is essential to the gospel message. That's why Paul mentions it. Well, last verse and the one that we really have to get to and we'll be done this morning verse 11 of verse of chapter 23 the following night the lord stood near paul and said take courage as you have testified about me in jerusalem so you must also testify in rome i find it interesting that this happened at night do you ever notice that when life is going difficult for you and for me that one of the first things that's affected is our sleep. You ever notice that? How difficult it is to sleep. How difficult it is to turn your mind off and just rest. That may be a little of what's going on here. This is night. Paul is looking and saying, wow, this is turning out to be quite a bit harder than maybe I even expected. And he still had a long way to go. By the way, he would be a prisoner of Rome for the next five years of his life. And I find it so tender that Jesus comes to him at night to reassure him I'm with you. 
I'm with you. You're not in the hands of the people and institutions in your life. You are in my hands. And that's what I want to tell you this morning. Whatever you're going through, whatever problem, whatever difficulty you're going through, you are not in the hands of the institutions. You are not in the hands of the people. You're in the hands of Jesus Christ. And he can't fail you. He can't and he won't fail you. Interestingly, Jesus said several times in the scripture, take courage to encourage people. He said it to the paralytic man in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 2, take courage. He said it to the woman with the issue of blood in Matthew chapter 9 verse 22, take courage. He said it to the disciples in the storm in Matthew 14, 27, take courage. He said it in the upper room. Take courage. So, take courage. I'm sorry I'm taking a little more time. We are going to finish chapter 23, verse 11. I'm going to finish with this. Uh, this is Leroy Imes in his, his uh, devotional book, Daily Discipleship. And I'm just going to read it and we'll be done. He says, I was in a South American country shortly after an American missionary was killed by terrorists. When the government raided the headquarters of this terrorist organization, they found detailed battle plans for the capture of one of the mission's main jungle training centers. When the government asked why the terrorists hadn't carried out their plan, the terrorists replied that it was because of the army they saw surrounding the mission camp. They knew they were no match for this large army. The incredible thing is, there was no army surrounding the mission camp. No human army, at least. And then Ein says it was much like the miracle of protection we see in 2 Kings 6, 6, the king of Syria was out to destroy the prophet Elisha and had sent his horses and chariots to surround the city of Dotham and to prevent Elisha's escape. When Elisha's young servants saw the army surrounding them, he cried out, what shall we do? He had given up. He thought it was all over. But the prophet answered calmly, don't be afraid. Take courage. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then he prayed that the Lord might open the servant's eyes so he could see things as they really were. The hills were full of horses and chariots of fire. God had sent his angels to protect Elisha. The young servant saw danger only with his physical eyes, but when his spiritual eyes were opened, he saw God's deliverance. And then Imes applies this. If you're feeling overwhelmed, by circumstances, and there seems to be no provision, ask the Lord to give you a fresh vision of things as they really are. And that's what I, my prayer is for me and for you, for each one of you this morning, that the Lord gives us a fresh vision as, the things, as things really are. The times, I'm says, when it appears we are hopelessly surrounded and outnumbered by enemy forces, God is still in control. You are in his hands if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the encouragement that you gave Paul in this most dire of circumstances in his life, yet through all of these difficult things, you were fulfilling your will for him. Lord, thank you for Jesus' words. Take courage. Help us to remember that. We pray in Jesus' name.